Ah, when I was at university, um, one of the subjects I had to study in first year was a subject called behavioural science. Uh, and this is one person whom we had to study. Does anybody know who this is? Any ideas? Anyone did psych or uh, teaching or any, any ideas? You can guess? No guesses. Anyone heard of Jean Piaget? Okay, well, no wonder you don't know who he is. All right. Piaget was a developmental psychologist, a pioneer in the area of developmental psychology. Uh, what he would do is he, he, he would study the child development, right, uh, and, and the thinking uh, and the stages of development of children. Uh, one famous experiment that he did uh, that we had to watch videos of was he had children here and um, milk, two glasses of milk, exactly the same glass. Pour milk into both glasses, exactly the same level. It says to the kids, which one's got more milk? They'll say same. Then he pours one into a tall, thin glass and one into a short, fat glass. Which one got more milk? That one. Okay. Pours back into the same glass. Which one got more milk? Same. Pour back again. Which one got more milk? That one. Now, it's not like these are dumb kids. Right? They're, they're intelligent kids. But, you see, kids have a different stage of, of development of their brain. Uh, and kids at that level of development just not developed enough to understand conservation principles. Uh, and so, they will do that. We all have much more developed brains, don't we? Well, we do. We have brains that are more developed than those little children. And yet, in the passage tonight, Habakkuk touches something that is beyond him, or people of adult development brains, to be able to fully grasp. Something beyond our feeble minds to understand completely, and yet something that we know is true. Last week, we saw that Habakkuk was a prophet. And he lived uh, in Judah, not long before Judah was destroyed by the Babylonians. You remember, he was complaining to God. God, how long must I wait for justice to be done? All kinds of injustices and terrible things and oppressions were happening in Judah among the people of God. And God seemed to ignore his cry for help. How long, O oh Lord, he asked, must I wait for you to do something about this situation? And then remember, God responded. And God said that he was going to raise up the Babylonians, a cruel, wicked people, a people who did not obey his law, and he would take them and he would use them to punish his people for their wickedness. Judah would become another victim of a Babylonian conquest that would sweep the world. They were to be scared. They were to be terrified. For they would be destroyed by this mighty army. 
Habakkuk doesn't like the sound of this. And so in today's passage, he starts to question God again. If last week the question was, how long, O Lord? This week the question is, how can, O Lord? How can you use these Babylonians for your purposes? These evil Babylonians for your purposes. Remember last week when we noticed how Habakkuk questioned God and grappled with the issues in prayer and we said, well, that's the way to do it, isn't it? Right? If you're questioning God, if you doubt God, then make sure you're talking to Him about it. So those of you who were here last week, if that's what you're going through, is that what you're doing? If not, here's another little reminder for you. If we're going to grapple with God, grapple with God. Habakkuk grapples with God. But he does it from a position of faith. That is, he doesn't say, God, you are useless. I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. He doesn't say, God, you are evil. Because you make such terrible things happen. He doesn't say, God, you don't exist. It's a bit hard to say, God, you don't exist. But he doesn't say, God, you don't exist. Because if you did, then all these things wouldn't be like this. No, no. He begins from a position of faith. Questioning faith, but nevertheless, faith. And he begins by affirming two great truths about God, laying them out as he prays to God. First of all, he affirms God's eternal faithfulness. In chapter 1, verse 12, his response is this, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die? Now, at first you wonder, what has God's eternity got to do with him sending Babylonians to Judah and having faith and them not dying and all that? Well, in the Old Testament, the safety and security of God's people was closely linked with God being eternal. Underneath are the everlasting arms. That's why we're secure. Are you not from everlasting, Habakkuk says? If you are, and I know you are, then then I know you will keep your promises, that you'll be faithful to your covenant people. And that is why he is able to say in the second half of verse 12, we shall not die. See, he's not saying that none of God's people will die. God's already said that many, many, many will but he is saying that they will not die out. God will not destroy them all because of the promises that he's made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The promises that he made to David, always have a son on the throne. The promises even that he made to Moses that when Israel sins and gets kicked out of the land, one day God is going to do something and bring them back. He will preserve them, even if it's a few. Faithful remnant. And yet, as we saw last week, the plan still is that they will be judged for their sins. They will face the wrath of the Holy One. And His instruments will be the Babylonians. O Lord, the second half of verse 12, You have ordained them as a judgment, and You, O Rock, have established them for reproof. God has chosen the Babylonians 
to judge his people. And yet, because God is eternal, God is faithful, because of God's promises, he will not destroy them all. And so the first thing that he affirms is that he, God's eternity, his eternal faithfulness to his people. The second thing that he wants to affirm is that God is pure and holy and just. Uh, we find that in verse 13. First half of verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Purer eyes to see evil and cannot look at wrong. You see, Habakkuk knew that God was completely perfect. In fact, actually, come to think of it, morality comes from him, doesn't it? Something is right because it is consistent with God's character. He is the foundation of truth, of, of righteousness, of morality. His eyes are, are too pure than to look upon evil. He will not tolerate what is wrong. That is why he must bring his people to justice. That is why the, the justice that Habakkuk was crying out for last week is, is actually inevitable. Because that's what God is like. He will not tolerate what is wrong, and he will certainly not be implicated in it. He is totally and utterly and purely good. There's not a hint of sin in him. There, there cannot be. Habakkuk knows this. He affirms this. God is faithful. The next click. God is good. He is pure. He is just. Now those are the solid facts. Those are the solid facts that Habakkuk knows. And he lays them out as he struggles with God. And friends, whenever we're grappling with things that we don't understand, especially about God and, and the way he works in this world, it is very helpful to lay out what we do know. Because if we establish what we do know for certain, establish them like pigs in the sand, they provide the boundaries and the limits for our thinking and praying about what we don't know. Does that make sense? There are many things we don't know. There are many ways God acts in this world which we find hard to understand. Many things in our lives that we struggle with. But if we, things that we do know are firmly established, then we can struggle with them, within the boundaries of what we do know, and be safe. We struggle in faith. And these, and these things that Habakkuk knows, that God is eternally faithful to his people, and that God is pure and just, actually, actually we know them. And we know them even better than Habakkuk, don't we? We know God is eternally faithful to his people even better than Habakkuk does because we have seen Jesus. And we have seen that God has fulfilled all his promises in Christ. We know God is pure and just even more than Habakkuk knows because we have seen Jesus. And we have seen what he did for us on the cross and we have seen how God, in order to forgive us because he loves us, has actually paid the most terrible price for us so that justice is done and our sin is not swept under the carpet but dealt with properly. You know God is... You know how much God is against sin by looking at the cross and you know how much God will not tolerate injustice. And so we know, we know much more than Habakkuk. And 
we can hold those things as firm fixed points in which we struggle. But you know, that purity and justice, that's a problem for Habakkuk. Because you see, if God is indeed pure and just, how can he judge through Babylon? How can he use the Babylonians who are so evil? Look back with me, uh, the second half of verse 12 and, and verse 13. He says, Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Those Babylonians, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? See, God is not just saying that. Habakkuk is not just saying, oh yeah, God has appointed the, the, these guys for, for, for judgment. He is flabbergasted that of all the people in the world, God is using these Babylonians to judge. And he's not just saying God is just. He has to affirm that God is just. Hold that big heart in the sand. Because it looks like he's being unjust. He has to remind himself that God is morally pure because he is tempted to think that, that God has morally compromised himself by being associated with the Babylonians. And so he affirms what he knows to be true about God and then he asks God, how can it be? How can it be? Why would you do such a thing? You whose eyes are too pure as to look upon evil why do you go and use these Babylonians and swallow up a man more righteous? I mean, the people of Judah were wicked. We know that. We saw that last week. No doubt about it. They need to be punished. No doubt about that. But the Babylonians, they're worse. Besides the Babylonians, the evil people of Judah look like angels. So these wicked Babylonians swallow up people more righteous than they. How can that be just? In fact, O oh God, Habakkuk says, just in case you've forgotten about how bad these Babylonians are, these people you want to use for justice, let me just remind you about them. They, picture. Picture the world as like a sea and the people and the nations are like fish swimming in the sea. Right? The picture uh, painted in verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, the crawling ones, throwing things that have no ruler. And what does the Babylonian do? The Babylonians are like a fisherman. Okay? Fisherman is a personification of Babylon. He comes and what does he have? He has in verse, um, verse 15, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. You see what I'm saying? The Babylon, Babylon is like this fisherman who comes and Picks up all the fish from the sea. Hey, caught another one. Hey, caught another one. Hey. These are nations. Powerful. Merciless. Like going fishing to catch fish. Babylon goes to catch people and nations. And do you think they worship you as God? You want to go and use them? You think they recognize you? 
acknowledge their power comes from you? No, 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 they don't. What do they worship? Verse 16. Therefore, this fisherman sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. You see, they're not honouring God, they worship their military might. They think they're doing it themselves. So God, you want to use them? What are you going to do about them? You want to let them just keep on going? Taking over nations and peoples? Verse 17. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? You really want to do this, Lord? How can So, Habakkuk, having asked his question, waits for God to answer. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watchtower, watch post, and station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And you know, friends, the amazing thing is, actually, can I just stop for a moment? Can someone just go and close that door? Uh, because then that will decrease the sound coming in. Is that okay? And there's a door left open in the crash. Thank you. Now, the amazing thing in the book of Habakkuk, when Habakkuk raises these questions and asks God, God actually answers And the answer he gives to Habakkuk is not the answer for Habakkuk alone, because remember Habakkuk is a prophet. It's an answer for all those who are asking a similar question. And so he instructs Habakkuk to write it down. Chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, thanks Marianne, the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets. Write it legibly so that he may run who reads it. It's important. It needs to be read. It needs to be understood and acted on. Write it down. And the second thing he tells Habakkuk is that the revelation will be fulfilled at the right time. And the right time is at the end. Verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. You see, this answer, this revelation, this um, fulfillment will happen at the time God has appointed. The revelation speaks of the end. Remember last week we, we talked about the story about justice and how if you t- have the story about justice but you stop the story anywhere before the end, it's a story of injustice. But you finish the story, you get to the end and you know it's a story of justice and God says wait for the end. Wait for the end. God says that judgment of Judah by Babylon that's not the end. There's more to the story that hasn't been told. 
Revelation awaits the appointed time. It speaks of the end. And when the end comes, as it certainly will, then, Habakkuk, your issue will be resolved. You will see that I am right. But God also gives a sneak preview. Tells him what's going to happen. Well, he actually talks about Babylon first. You think Babylon is bad, God says? Actually, I know it is even worse than you describe. You personified Babylon as a fisherman. I'll personify him as well. He is this conceited man. Verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Here is Babylon personified. He is a proud, self-sufficient man. He is the opposite of someone who humbly trusts in me. The righteous who lives by faith. Trusts in God and therefore is considered righteous. But here is Babylon who is self-sufficient, who is not like that, who is puffed up. The one who trusts in God is considered righteous and therefore will escape the final judgment. Babylon, he's not like that, is he? He is self-sufficient and proud and he will face the judgment at the end. This proud, self-sufficient man that Babylon is, he is like an alcoholic. An alcoholic is addicted to wine. Babylon is addicted to the spoils of war. Chapter 2, verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Sheol is a place of the dead. And like death, he is never enough. Grave's never full, you can always put more. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all people. Babylon is insatiably greedy. He will never be content. He, he will not settle down. He will not, his ego will, he will not let him be at peace. He always want to conquer the next nation and the next nation and the next nation. He wants to get more and more and more. Now, some people think that Microsoft is greedy. I don't know if Microsoft is growing. Well, it's up to what do you think? That it will not be satisfied till it gets, you know, 100% market share for all its products. If it's not the operating system, then the next thing is the web browser. And not the web browser, the next thing is the office suites. If it's not the office suites, then it's the search engines. Bing. Alright, the next thing they're going to be after the PDAs and mobile phones. So, Nokia, watch out. Right. I don't know what you think about Microsoft, actually. But whatever it is, Babylon. It's a different category altogether. Babylon will steal and kill on a massive scale to feed its ego, to feed its consumer demands for luxury goods. It will plunder nations, destroy lands and cities and everyone in them. Crime and bloodshed this is this modus operandi. And thought it was so powerful that it would never be called into account. But it hadn't counted on God. The day will come, God said, when the nations that Babylon plundered and the peoples they captured would mock them in turn. Verse 6. Shall not 
all those taking all these, that is the nations, the peoples, take up their taunts against him with scoffing and riddles for him. Taunts, you know what taunts are, isn't it? Like mocking, jeering, okay? Teasing in a negative, really, really negative kind of way. And God puts five taunts in the mouth of the nations as he predicts the future of Babylon. The first taunt is from the second half of verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, and for how long? And loathes himself with pledges. Will, your not, will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. The picture, picture here is someone like a crooked along businessman. Okay, a crooked loan shark. Because what is he doing? He's got lots and lots of people who owe him. And actually it's because he's cheated them and stolen from them. And now he's got them in his debt. In his clutches. Babylon stole. Babylon cheated. Babylon plundered and killed and took many captives. But Babylon itself will be victimized. Babylon will be plundered. What Babylon did to others will come back to haunt them. They will receive their due. Instantly, friends, Stealing and cheating and victimizing others don't pay, do they, in the end? If your company wants you to do that, then please get out of your company. Babylon will be judged for her actions. The second talk focuses on the gains that Babylon got through injustice and perversity. They robbed others in order to get what they thought was security for themselves. Verses 9 to 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork responds. Picture here is like they want to build a secure house. Like a bird builds its nest up high, where people can't reach, animals can't get there, all right, so, that, so it's safe. They're wanting security. Historians tell us that around Babylon they built this huge wall with a hundred gates. That's how big it is. And how thick is the wall? It's so thick that uh, a chariot with four horses can run along the top of it. Security. Babylon is like they built this secure house from stolen wealth and the blood of people who had been killed to get it. And so it's like the stones of the wall and the wooden rafters are answering back, whoa, 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 whoa. You've made us from bloodshed. Babylon would suffer the same fate that it inflicted on other nations. As a nation, it built its wealth unfairly by exploiting and destroying others, and all that will come back to haunt them as well. And you know, friends, 
many nations today compete unfairly in the global markets, don't they? Rich nations manipulate the rules to make sure they stay rich. Poor nations remain poor. Some nations destroy others for their own material gain. Woe to him, God says, who gets evil gain for his house. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his company. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his business. Woe to him who gets evil gain for himself. Babylon built its wealth unfairly and would suffer the consequences. The third thought is found in verses 12 to 13. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire the nations weary themselves for nothing? The way that Babylon created their empire was the exact opposite of the way that God establishes his kingdom. The kingdom of Babylon was built by violence. Atrocities were committed to make their empire. But actually, when you think about it, you find that all over the world, don't you? Many nations are like that. Saddam Hussein in the old Iraq is only one example. It's a common phenomenon. Even countries like Australia, built on terrible acts of genocide against the Aborigines. God says, that kind of kingdom will not last. Work as hard as you like for it, It'll come to an end. It'll be judged. And all the work you put into the building will be, will be wasted. For all your building will be burnt. You spend your life making fuel for the fire of God's judgment. Ultimately, it's God's kingdom. Not the kingdom of Babylon that will triumph. And so in verse 14 we have this promise. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See friends, that is the kingdom that lasts forever. No other. No other nation, no other organization, no other civilization, no. This is the one kingdom that is built rightly. The earth shall be filled with knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The fourth thought describes Babylon as being like someone who exploits the weakness of others and ruins them. It's like he gets his neighbor drunk so he can take advantage of him. Verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. See, what Babylon made his neighbours do was to drink his wrath. That is, his, his fury, his, his, his anger. In other words, they imbibe the fury of Babylon as they are overrun by the Babylonian armies. And their peoples are killed, their cities are burned, they are left naked, desolate, humiliated, defenceless. 
That is what the Babylonians did to their neighbors. And God says he will do the same to them. Verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done in Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. You see a common theme that's coming through here? What Babylon has done to other nations, all going to come back and hit them. God is going to punish them. God is going to give retribution for their acts against the other nations. The final taunt is different than the others. The final one has got to do with the Babylonian religion. Because you see, they were idolaters. Verse 18. What prophet is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Interesting, isn't it? God is not a relativist. He's not a pluralist. He calls a spade a spade. He doesn't say, oh, you know, it's good to have me for Israel. And for other nations, it's good to have their idols. Uh, and, you know, we can all, idols are over there, and I'm over here, and it's all nice. And No, 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 no. Babylon worshipped idols, and God says, that's, that's useless. It didn't make you, you made it. It just sits there, and it can't speak. Because when all is said and done, it's just wood or stone. Might look impressive, but... But it's not alive. And so we read on in verse 19. I says, what? What? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! And to a silent stone, Arise! Silent stone will remain silent. Can this teach? God says, No, it can't teach. It can't teach you anything. Because it can't speak. Is overlaid with gold and silver. It's impressive, it's expensive, but there is no breath in it at all. In contrast, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Yahweh, the God of Israel, he is the one true God. He's not just like the God of Israel and all the other nations have their own gods and it doesn't matter because it's all the same. One's no better than the other. No, no, no. God is God over all the nations. God is in His holy temple. Let the earth keep silent before Him. For unlike the silent idols of Babylon, God is the God who speaks He speaks and he is not silent. The idols, they are silent. But before God, let the earth keep silent. God 
speaks and everyone has to be silent and listen. Just the opposite of the idols who are silent themselves. God speaks and he has just spoken through his prophet. And notice he has spoken a word of judgment not just on his own people like last week but on another people. Because you see, he is the creator, he is the ruler, he is the judge of every nation on this planet. He is the God of all the earth. And although he uses Babylon to judge Judah for her sins, he will also punish Babylon. He will not forget her crimes. He sees them very clearly, even more clearly than Habakkuk, and one day he will call Babylon to account. Because God is indeed the God of justice. And justice will be done and will be seen to be done, not only among the people of God, but among all the nations. God is God. Let the earth be silent before him. As we look back at the passage, ask one of the implications for some of the things we... Well, let us give us... I want to give us three minor points to consider before coming back to apply the main point of the passage. First minor point, let's remember that God is the judge of every person, nation, empire and civilization. Nations do all kinds of things that are wrong, but nations, like individuals, are accountable for their actions. God will judge the nations for the way they have acted. And that judgment is exercised in history. Nations rise, nations fall, empires are built, empires are destroyed, and through it all, God is acting in justice to punish wickedness. And so those of us who are in positions of influence, or will be in positions of influence in our nations, must take that seriously. We must seek to right the wrongs of our nations. We must seek to guide our nations to doing what is right. We're accountable as a nation for our behavior. Secondly, we're reminded, as we were last week, that justice will come at the end. God says to Habakkuk, the revelation is concerning the end. And while God's judgments are exercised in history, these are but shadows or warnings or tastes of the final judgment, which is the real one. And it's only at the end of the story where we will see justice completely fulfilled. It's only at the end of time when Jesus comes to judge the world when perfect justice will be meted out. When each human being is dealt with on an individual basis and the general judgments on people and nations are fine-tuned to give perfect justice to each person. And so even those who were in this world, used by God for his purposes, are called to account for what they have done. Habakkuk is told to wait for it. If it's slow, wait for it. It will come. It will not delay. Just like we're told in the New Testament that to wait for Christ's coming. Look what uh, the Apostle Peter has to say on the next slide. He says, 2 Peter 3, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing where is the promise of his coming? Ever since our fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But down to verse 8, do not overlook this one fact, 
that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, and the heavens and the earth will pass away. God will judge eventually, and justice will be done in the end. Thirdly, we are reminded of the frailty of human institutions and civilizations. A Babylon in the time of Habakkuk uh, would have seemed invincible. As invincible as America seemed a few years ago. But no nation is invincible. No civilization is invincible, be it Western civilization or Islamic civilization or Sino-Asian civilization. No party is invincible. Not even the Communist Party in the old Soviet Union. Looked that way for a while, didn't it? least there. No company is invincible, not even Microsoft or even Enron. God will judge every human institution. Do not give your life for something that will not last. Do not burn yourself out just to create fuel for God's judgment fire. Do not sell your soul to your company. Now, of course, we've got to work honestly We've got to work faithfully. We've got to serve the Lord at work. All those things are right. But don't sell your soul for it. Your ultimate loyalty is to the God who created you and to the God who redeemed you. The God who called you out from the nations to be his very own people. The God who loves you and gave his son to die for you. Love him and follow him and give your life for him. Chase what will last forever, not what's going to pass away. But the main point of the passage, the main thing that this passage is about, it's about how God works in this world. I mean, that's what Habakkuk was asking about, isn't it? Because he could not work out how to hold those things together. He knew God is sovereign, that he's in control. God told him in the passage that he is going to raise up the Babylonians to punish his people. They don't come up by themselves. God is the one. And yet Habakkuk also knows that God is pure and righteous and does not tolerate evil. And yet these Babylonians are so evil and wicked and defiant and idolatrous and selfish and cruel. How can a pure and holy and sovereign God utilize evil and use a wicked nation to punish a less wicked one, even though they're wicked as well. How can God be morally pure and yet use evil people for his purposes? Well, God answer, God's answer was that he is keeping accounts, isn't he? And justice will be done in the end. Yes, the Babylonians are evil, but they will pay for their evilness, just like everyone else. They will be subject to judgment as well. Dear friends, God is good, not bad. He is good, not evil. God is too pure to look upon evil. He will not tolerate what is wrong and he will certainly not be implicated in it. He is totally and utterly and purely good. And yet, 
He uses evil people to accomplish his good purposes without in any way, shape or form being an accomplice to evil or condoning it. The evildoers are completely responsible for their actions and they will be punished in the end. And yet God remains sovereign and works his good purposes out. That's just the way it is. No one can fully understand that. It's like this sheet of paper, right? There's two sides. Look from up here, you can say God is completely sovereign. He's in control. Everything. He's the one raising up the Babylon to come along and do his work. From this way, we are completely responsible. Responsible for our actions. We are accountable for everything that we do. God is sovereign. We are responsible. And those are two things that are both true. Both those things are taught in the scriptures over and over again. And both those things are things that... You see, we can't look at it, both those things, at the same time. Look this way, God is sovereign. He's in control. Look this way, we are responsible. Right? Our minds, just like the minds of those kids, not big enough to understand, to grasp, to intuit conservation principles. We can't see that and that at the same time. We can see it here and we can see it here. We can't just... Maybe you're a bit more developed than me, I don't know. But I can't anyway, alright? We can't see at the same time. But both of them we know are true. And both of them we see right throughout the scriptures, over and over again. And in no place do we see it more clearly than at the cross of the Lord Jesus. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, if you look at the events of Jesus' death, you see evil men. Evil people conspiring to pervert the course of justice. We see people full of envy and bitterness and pride, protecting their vested interests by sending an innocent man to be executed. We see a weak-willed governor who is more interested in placating the masses and keeping his job than, than justice for the oppressed. We see Jew and Gentile conspiring together against the Son of God. Why did Jesus die? Because he was crucified by wicked men. Evildoers who are responsible for their actions. Who will be held accountable for their actions. Look how the early Christians described them in Acts chapter 4. They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And yet the very next verse, what does it say? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Evil men caused Jesus' death. But God had not lost control, even in that situation. Why did Jesus die? Jesus died, look at this way, because of evil men. Jesus died this way because God had decided beforehand that he should. Jesus died because God loves you and he loves me. Jesus died because God knew that if you or I had to face his judgment, we would never survive. We would be lost far away from him for all eternity. And he didn't want that. 
Jesus died because he loved, because God loved you before the world was made and wanted to forgive your sins and make you his child. Jesus died to take away your sins so that you can be totally forgiven. God in Christ gave himself for you. Jesus died to bear the wrath of God on your behalf. To save you. It's all part of God's plan. Jesus died because of evil men. Doing their terrible, terrible plans. Jesus died because of God's good plan. To save us from our sins and make us his very own. See? God's sovereignty, human responsibility the same time the same events and so when we confront evil in our day we remember two things evil is evil God will punish evil people and evil nations and yet God is still in control God still brings good out of people he uses evil to bring good that in the end he might be glorified God brings good out of evil. It makes evil no less evil. It makes God no less good. But through everything in this world, He is bringing about His good purposes. He's bringing His things to a climax. He is rescuing for Himself a people who love Him and belong to Him. And hastening the day when all wrongs are put right. When evil will be gone. When sin and all its consequences will be done with forever. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray.